last lesson that we're going to do from First Kings for a little bit because uh, tonight rounds out the life of Solomon. We're looking at uh, the book of Kings and chunks of the lives of how they're presented, these characters that are given to us in those accounts. And so uh, to prep you and warm you up for next Sunday night, we'll uh, start the book of Esther, a, a book that is uh, often an enigma to people about why is this even in the Bible and what are we supposed to get out of it. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting a chance to, to go through it. Uh, it is extremely relevant. That's why the series is called Living Courageously. And really the, the front end of 2021, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, how to live courageously because that's the section we're at in the book of Acts as we're talking about unstoppable and now living courageously with Esther. So we're going to have a lot of good threading together of these ideas about how to live with the kind of faith uh, that God wants us to have. So I'm excited about that series, uh, and I hope you are as well as we'll prepare for that uh, to last just a couple of months here as we kick off into uh, 2021. Uh, but for tonight, we are going to round out the life of Solomon, which is in 1 Kings 11 and 12. Uh, we live in a time right now where essentially the defense of sin is... I'm not hurting anyone. That's, that's kind of just what the definition of sin is anymore. If I don't think I'm hurting anybody, then it must be fine. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and I think that is an interesting perspective to say, well, if I'm not hurting anyone, then it's really not a big deal. And it's certainly not a sin. And that's ultimately how uh, our culture then is justifying uh, a lot of the way that it wants to live and essentially doing and committing whatever sins uh, we want to commit. And what we're going to look at tonight with Solomon is really the ripple effect of sin. It is seeing what sin does. Uh, should help bring clarity to why we would want to avoid it. And in particular, why the idea of saying, well, I'm not hurting anybody is really completely false. Uh, what Solomon has done, as we have looked at in chapter 11, is essentially violate every command that God gave for his kings to keep. He has completely blown them apart. He's acquired horses and chariots. He's gotten horses from Egypt. He has all kinds of wealth. He's married all kinds of foreign women. His heart has been turned away from the Lord so that in 1 Kings 11 and verse 9, it just simply says that the Lord is angry with Solomon. That's where things now are at with Solomon. And what God is going to do in such a staggering picture is essentially take away all the glory and all the wealth of this kingdom. And that should be stunning to us for all that we've looked at over these past few chapters. Because we have seen that this is truly an amazing kingdom with all of its blessings and all of its wealth and all of the good that it was supposed to do for the people and representing God to the nations and the temple being established. And God now, as Solomon has turned away from him, has just simply said, it's over. And what God is going to do now is raise up these adversaries against Solomon because of his sin. With the kingdom being taken away from him and from his offspring, there are three adversaries that are described. And if you've ever read 1 Kings 11, you might wonder why does it spend so much time talking about these three people? Who cares about their background? I mean, we got a Hadad the Edomite and Rezin the Syrian and you kind of go, well, 
okay, what, what are we doing here? But what's really fascinating is these three people that God raises up as adversaries against Solomon are actually telling Israel's story. And in telling Israel's story, we are getting a picture of God unwinding the kingdom of Israel and using the enemies of Solomon to tell Israel's story. Let me show you what I mean. One of the the lengthier descriptions is found in verses 14 through 22. And for the sake of time, for the point of the lesson, I can't go reading all of this as much as I'd want to. I'd encourage you to go back and read this for yourself. But we see that in verse 14, the Lord raises up an adversary against Solomon. His name is Hadad of Edom. What is particularly interesting is when you read his life story as given to us in this section, you will read this and think that sounds an awful lot like Jacob and an awful lot like Joseph and an awful lot like Moses. Let me tell you what I mean as I give you the summary is that Hadad is from Edom and because of the David's invasions as he is conquering the land, Hadad flees to Egypt while he is still a boy. He is taken into Pharaoh's house. He pleases Pharaoh, marries an Egyptian, and then once Solomon is, is about to die, he tells Pharaoh that he needs to go back to his own country. Uh, sound familiar? <laughs> it's really interesting that, hey, hey, Dad, sounds like the whole going down to Egypt with Jacob and then the hope that is found in Joseph and then the Moses Exodus that happens after that. This is essentially a picture that Solomon has become the Canaanite. And God is raising up Hadad as the new Moses to bring judgment against the Canaanites as envisioned by Solomon. Solomon's error, Solomon's sin has now put him in the camp of being just like the Canaanites. And God is now raising up, if you will, a Gentile Moses of sorts, who is now going to be the adversary of Solomon and now cause this this, uh, judgment and this warring against Solomon and the people of God. Similar picture happens in verses 23 through 25, where God also raises up another adversary. His name is Rezin, and he is of Syria, and his story mirrors the life of David. Let me tell you about how his story mirrors. Where Rezin, what he does is he is in service to his master, but then he runs away from his master to protect his life, gathers an army in the wilderness, and then eventually becomes king to cause trouble against Solomon. Which is just like David who is faithfully serving Saul and then runs for his life, gathers an army in the wilderness, and eventually then goes up against Saul. Rezin then is also telling Israel's story in a similar way in mirroring the life of David. Again, giving you the picture that Solomon is now considered an enemy. He is just like the Canaanites and is worthy of judgment. And God is raising up these outsiders as adversaries. The one that we probably are most familiar with is Jeroboam, and his story is from verse 26 all the way to the end of chapter 11. And Jeroboam's story 
mirrors the life of David as well. Because what you see is Jeroboam is actually a faithful servant of Solomon. And what happens is in serving Solomon, just as David had served Saul, a prophet comes to Jeroboam and tells him, it's in verse 29, that Jeroboam is going to be king, just as a prophet had come to David and told David that he was going to be king. And the rise of his kingship is depicted by the tearing of the prophet's garments. That Ahijah here comes to Jeroboam, takes the robe, tears it into pieces, gives ten of the pieces to Jeroboam and says, you're going to rule over the ten tribes of Israel. Well, remember when the kingdom was being taken away from Saul, as Samuel walked away, Saul tore Samuel's robe and Samuel turned and said, that's the kingdom being taken away from you. And so now that's being replayed again as the kingdom is being taken away from Solomon and is now being given to Jeroboam, the servant of Solomon. What is also interesting, once Solomon finds out that Jeroboam is going to take these tribes, he tries to kill him. That sounds familiar, just as Saul tried to kill David once he found out that David was going to be king. And notice that the promise that is made to Jeroboam through the prophet by God sounds Awfully similar to the prophecy that Nathan made to David. Listen to the prophecy in chapter 11 and verse 37. He says to Jeroboam, And I will take you and you will reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David, my servant did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. Remember that whole covenant promise to David, Senator around David wanting to build a house for God. And God says, I'm going to build you a house that's going to be sure. Well, now to Jeroboam, the same promise is made that God says, if you obey me, I will build your house and you will be a sure house. So you are getting a mirror of Jeroboam being like David. Again, an indication that Solomon is the Canaanite that must be destroyed. And God is raising up Jeroboam and Rezin and Hadad as the new conquerors to come in because of the sin that Solomon has committed. And with that, that's the end of Solomon's story. That just closes the book on Solomon. There's no parade. There's no hooray. The kingdom just comes to a crashing halt. And its destruction is imminent as God is raising up these adversaries to come up against Solomon and to come up against the people of God. But before we push into chapter 12 and see the outcome of this, I want to observe a couple of things that we should consider in just spanning the life of Solomon. And first, what I want us to see that God wants us to understand that there is absolutely no human that can be the hope for humanity. Because Solomon was the best bet. Solomon was the guy. Solomon establishes and expands the kingdom, builds the temple, God with him. The covenantal promises are declared. If there is any chance of a human being able to be the hope for humanity, he would have been the one. And what I want you to see is with Solomon's failure, 
It immediately is telling us that there is no human that can be our hope. Not a single one. Not a ruler. Not a leader. Not anybody. None of them can be the hope of what humanity needs. None of them can be the rescue. Furthermore, going along with that, Human wisdom can't bring in salvation for us either. Here is Solomon with all of this wisdom granted to him by God, and even he can't use it in such a way to be the hope and help for the world. Even the Solomon, there is a complete collapse of the kingdom, and he doesn't do what God says to do. The reason why that is, I think, particularly important is is we still live in the post-Enlightenment world, which says... If we could just educate enough people, we would be able to have peace, a world utopia, and eradicate all evil. And I just want to tell you that ain't true. We've been trying that for hundreds of years at this point. The alignment starts way on back. (laughs) And this belief, if we could just have enough education, if we could just explain ourselves to enough people, we just teach enough people, that'd change the world. And while education certainly has massive benefits, it's not going to be the hope of what we need. It's not the rescue we're looking for. It's not going to be the end of evil nor the salvation of God's people. And it will certainly not bring in peace. It just can't happen. And you see that with Solomon. If there was any hope of that, it is in the reign of Solomon. And yet even with Solomon, these things do not happen. And so with Solomon, we have seen Israel rise to the top. And now it begins to be the fall of the kingdom. In chapter 12, with Solomon dead, his son Rehoboam is supposed to take the throne. And so all of Israel presents themselves before Rehoboam. And what they do is they say, we've got a demand. We've got a problem. Your dad, he put a heavy yoke on us that was hard to bear. Which, by the way, do you hear the echo that, again, Solomon sounds like Pharaoh? Uh, Up to this point, what we have been seeing in the kingdom is that the kingdom and the rule of Solomon was supposed to be the good for the people. It was supposed to be everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Everyone is prosperous. Everyone at peace. Everybody enjoying the kingdom. And we haven't seen anything to consider that it's not that until here. Where we find out it hasn't been that. With Solomon's sin, the kingdom has now gone an alternate direction. And now you have Solomon sounding like Pharaoh because the people are complaining and saying, the yoke of your father and his reign was too heavy to bear. And so what Rehoboam does in chapter 12 is he consults with the advisors of his father's administration and says, what should we do? Their advice is pretty simple, pretty logical, pretty straightforward. If you do what the people ask, they will serve you forever. I mean, that's kind of the way things work in politics. If you make them happy, they'll love you. And that's what they basically say, is if you grant their wish and and, and lighten the load, they'll be thrilled. But Rehoboam rejects that. And so then he asked his his, uh, other advisors, those who he grew up with, and asked them, what should we do? And in verses 10 and 11, they say, make the burden even heavier than what your father had done before. Which, by the way, again, do you hear the Pharaoh terminology? Remember when Israel cried out under their burden, the Pharaoh said, 
your complaining shows you have too much time on your hands and made it harder on them. So here is Rehoboam also reenacting the Pharaoh sequence. These are now being portrayed as Canaanite Pharaoh evil rulers. And so they plead for help. And rather than alleviating the load, Rehoboam says, we are going to make it worse on you rather than better. If you think my father was tough, you haven't seen anything yet. Verse 11, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Well, there's no other way to generate the love of the people. And they all say, well, we ain't for that. (laughs) We're not going to go along with that. In fact, it is really interesting. The other symbolism that sits here in verse 12 is notice in verse 12, what day they've returned to come and hear this is on the third day. I've made a big deal to you that third days are supposed to be days of deliverance and rescue. You see that all over the place. And notice this becomes not the day of deliverance. The people have come for alleviation and rescue and help from his father. And instead of finding the help, the third day has not been a day of deliverance. Instead, the day has been even worse than that. And so Jeroboam in verse 12, as they come together and they hear the king's answer, they essentially say that we have nothing to do with you. And Jeroboam takes his ten tribes of Israel and essentially departs and says, we are no longer part uh, of this nation anymore. In fact, a very interesting line is given in verse 19 where it says, and so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. A shocking declaration because here you're already getting a picture of this remnant idea is that The mass of Israel is not going to belong to the house of David. The wording is very important. Israel remains in rebellion to the house of David. And only this one tribe is going to be under the reign of the house of David and continue to belong to it. And so with that then, Rehoboam says he's going to go to battle. He's going to go to war over this and try to bring his ten tribes back. Basically initiate a civil war. And the scene ends with essentially the Lord coming and to make, sending a message to Rehoboam and says, you're not going to fight against your brethren. This thing is from God. Now, with those two chapters, you'd say, what does that have to do with the ripple of sin? And you said we were going to talk about that. All right, well, let's go there now. Let's talk about how all that plays together. Because... What is, I think, huge? There are two two big pictures, but the first big picture that God is trying to teach us and trying to teach the people is that we would open our eyes really to the sovereignty of God, that we would see how God is in motion for all of the events that are happening here. It is a staggering thing to watch. For example, we are told in like chapter 11, verse 14, That it is the Lord who causes Hadad the Edomite to rise up against Solomon. And then a few verses later in verse 23, we are told that God raised up Rezin to stand as an, as an adversary against Solomon. And then who was the one who was behind Jeroboam and his rise? It was God. God was the one who sent the prophet to Jeroboam to say, you're going to take these ten tribes and visualizes it with the tearing of the robe. And if that was not enough, 
when you have in chapter 12 that Rehoboam rejects the counsel of Solomon's advisors and chooses instead to make things worse so that the ten tribes leave, notice chapter 12, verse 15. Notice what it says. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Silonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Why did the nation divide in two? Well, because Rehoboam was a dummy. That's not what the text says. The text says God used that, and that was the turn of affairs was because of the Lord himself who did it. And then finally, as the civil war is about to unfold, it is emphasized to us again in verse 24, where the Lord tells the people to go to their home because this division, the splitting of the nation, is from me. Now here's what I want you to see as our first point. The Lord is the one who's the reason for the rise of Hadad and all the problems that he caused. And the Lord is the reason for Rezin and his rise and the problems he caused. The Lord is the reason why for the rise of Jeroboam and him taking the ten tribes. And it wasn't just simply of Rehoboam, but that God was accomplishing something through that. And it prevents the civil war from happening because the two tribes, Israel and Judah, were essentially from the hand of God. Why? Because of Solomon's sin. It's all because of Solomon's sin. These are the consequences from the sinning of Solomon. I want you to see that in what is transpiring and all that is happening, what God is doing is invoking the consequences for the sins of Solomon. This ultimately is the ripple effect of sin. I call it the ripple effect of sin because what sin does is it doesn't simply affect ourselves, but it goes so far out into the distance that you cannot begin to see where it ends. I I try to liken the impact and the consequences of sin to like throwing a rock in the middle of a pond and trying to watch how far the ripples go. It just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes until it's out of eyesight. You can't even begin to see how far the ripples go anymore. And this is a truth that God has always tried to show us is that the impact of sin goes way beyond you and your lifetime. Let's start at the very beginning. Are we still feeling the impact of Adam and Eve's sin? Yeah. Yeah. God was saying that from the very start is I want you to understand the impact and the consequences of what sinning does. And so even Adam and Eve's sin did not only affect them far from it. It has affected the whole world. And so long as God allows the world to spin, it will still affect the whole earth and affect all people. We've been spending our time in day with David over the book of Samuel and Kings. Did David's sin only affect him? Not even close. Not even close. 
It affected all kinds of people. It affected Uriah. It affected Bathsheba. It affected the child. It affected the nation. It affected his ability to rule. It's the reason why you have his sons going crazy like Adonijah and Absalom with them no longer listening to David but trying to overthrow him. That one sin, if you would have said, do you think that sin of adultery is going to have a really big impact? I would probably think you'd say it might have a small one. It changed everything. It changed everything. And how about Solomon? How much impact has his decision to marry all of these women and to accumulate riches? What 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 impact has that had upon him, his children, and the nation? What I want us to see is God made life so that the consequences of our sins go far beyond ourselves. That is the way God made it. He made it so that when we break His law, it will not be a small, it only hurt me for five minute consequence. It can be far reaching and it can be far lasting. Sin hurts us, our children, our friends, our family, a local church, we cannot even begin to comprehend what our sinning now will do in the future and how much wreckage it will cause. And God made it that way. When we choose to disobey God, it is going to impact far more people than ourselves. It's going to impact others. And I want you to just take a step back and Just think about this reality for a minute, whether it be in your own life. Well, let's just start with your own life. Can you think of sins in your life that have had consequences that were completely unforeseen and you never expected? And maybe it's a little bit easier to see. How about the sinning of your parents? Do you see the sins of your parents and the impact it had on maybe you? Or your children on top of that and the effect that it has had and how far reaching the ripple effect of sin could be with that. Or how about the sins of your friends and the impact that their sinning has caused in their families or in your lives or other friends? How about the sins of your spouse still affecting others, the sins of your children and the far reaching impact of of those sins? We have to see. The devastating consequences of sin and to listen to our culture and buy into the idea that the sin that I'm committing remains in this little box and it will only be right here is as foolish as me saying I can hold water in my hands. It's going to go all over the place. That's what sin does. It goes all over the place. The impact is so far reaching that we cannot begin to comprehend the amount of consequences and the amount of hurt and the amount of pain that can be caused to other people. I could do example after example and just would spend too much of our time, but I know you can relate to seeing that in perhaps your family or your friends or in others where you can see a single sin, a single decision dramatically changed the course of events, dramatically altered life course, dramatically caused pain for so many people 
that even if it was decades and decades ago, still has an impact now and still will have an impact in the future. It is stunning to see the impact of sin. But I want you to think about if you were Adam and Eve in the garden and you just said, well, we're just going to eat this fruit. Would you perceive how far the consequence would go? Or if you were David, would you think it would be as lasting and, and far reaching as it was or with Solomon? And we cannot fall into the trap of thinking that our sins will only affect the here and now and just us. Big message of Solomon, 11 chapters were showing us the rise of Solomon and how God was blessing him. And just a couple of verses said his heart turned away from God. And within one chapter, we now see the complete fall of the kingdom and devastation to come. Which makes the second part of this message, I think, even more amazing. Is that we see that Solomon's sinning was significant. And yet, through Solomon's sin, did you notice that God is accomplishing his purposes? It is... Absolutely stunning to consider how God takes the sinning of human beings and accomplishes his will through that to such a degree that you can stand back and go, the sinning of humanity never thwarts God's plan. It never does. You take any instance and think, well, that's going to mess things up. And God goes, no, I'll just use that too. You'd read Judas and go, well, that's going to mess things up. And God goes, no, I'm using that. I'm going to use that to accomplish my will still. And even with Solomon and all these says, this is going to mess everything up. No, I'm going to now give Jeroboam an opportunity to serve me and obey me. And I will make him promises. And if he will serve me, I'll make him a sure house. And he gives Rehoboam the opportunity to serve him and obey him. Don't go to war against Jeroboam. That's for me. You obey me and serve me. And I will be with you. And I will keep my covenant because I made it with David. So Rehoboam, you obey me. He uses the sin to accomplish his purposes. And he's able to still accomplish his will. And still give opportunity for people to obey and to follow him. Which means that even more so. What you see God doing is that God is using the failure of Solomon to show what we ultimately need. We need a perfect king who is going to come from heaven because a human ruler can't do it. Who will perfectly obey the will of God and usher in righteousness, peace, justice, And the salvation that we need. That's what this all is building up to. Is trying to teach Israel and teach the world through all of these failures. That your hope cannot be in a human. It cannot be in a physical kingdom or a physical country. It has to be in God who comes down and becomes the rescuer for us. That's the whole twist of this thing. Is that God says... The turn of affairs, the twist, had actually come from God himself. He is the one who is able to do his will, even in the face of sinning. And I would end by saying this, is that ultimately then that means God is able to take our lives in a new direction 
even when we make a mess of it. Even after things are a total mess, God is able to take that and go a new direction with you. It's so exciting to think that you would read Solomon and go, Solomon, you have messed everything up. Everything is rude. And God goes, no, I'm working through that. I'm working through that. I'm going to accomplish my purposes anyway. I'll teach people through Solomon. And I will accomplish my will anyway. And he can do that in your life as well. That you can do the same thing. That you can give your life to him. Even with all the mistakes that are made in the past. That God is greater than our sins. And he is able to accomplish great things and change things. Even after our failures. It, it, it is hard to believe. Because we're, I think we're so used to messing things up with sins so bad that we serve a God who says, I'm bigger than that. And I can still do great things in your life and I will still accomplish my purposes and I will still do my will even after the mess-ups, even after the mistakes. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we see that you are in full control. You have full charge of the affairs of this earth. You have full charge of the events that are unfolding. And Lord, it's our prayer that we would always have rest and peace in that knowledge. That you are sovereign over all people. You are sovereign over all nations. And that no matter what is happening, your will will be accomplished. And God, thank you for being greater than us. Thank you for doing righteousness out of the messy things that we do in this world. The sinning that we commit. Thank you, God, for being so great and so majestic that you accomplish your will despite the things that we do. Lord, we pray that we would have a far greater trust in you, that our eyes would always be heavenward. We'd always look to you and see that you are in control. We have nothing to worry about. And we have nothing to fear. So, Lord, that you would give us calm when we have anxious hearts, that you'd give us courage when we fear, and that we would always look to you and put our hope and trust in you, no matter the circumstances that we may face in this life. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And, Lord, we pray that you would be able to accomplish your will and do great things in our lives, even though we have failed you and sinned, that we could be instruments in your hands that we could still be image bearers of your great glory. And so, Lord, we pray that you would mold us and change us and use us in ways that would accomplish those purposes, even with the terrible past that we can have and the terrible sinning that we've committed. And God, thank you for allowing us to still be your children, to still be your servants with all of our failures and all of our mistakes. And we know that it's through your son that we have this hope and through your son that we can be your children. We pray this tonight. Amen. I'm going to sing an invitation song, and we hope that you will think about the hope that is in God in spite of our sinning, of what God is able to do in those kinds of things. You know what's special about those two chapters as well is not one of those things was miraculous, and yet God was moving the pieces around. He was moving Hadad. He was moving Rezin. He was moving Jeroboam. He was moving Rehoboam. He's moving all those pieces around.
because God's going to accomplish his will one way or another. We put a great hope in that. Can we help you in any way come to a Lord who's sovereign over this earth, that you'd put your trust in him and follow him faithfully, turn away from sin, belong to him, and serve him with all your heart. If we can help you do that, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?